Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Our guest today has gone deeper behind the headlines than anyone else will probably meet in our lives about the headlines that make New Haven tick. His name is Nicholas Davidoff. He has a book coming out next week that is one of the best books ever written about New Haven, essential to understand our city, and it'll grip you like nothing else you've read this year, The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice in the American city. It's about a 16-year-old New Hallville person who was falsely accused of a murder, intimidated into confessing, spent, got 38 years in Cheshire, and then was exonerated and tried to rebuild his life. But it's also a story about gun violence. That's a much more common headline, as anyone who reads New Haven News knows, than you'd expect. And uh, Nicholas Davidoff did it right. Spent eight years, and the book's a masterpiece. Nicholas Davidoff, welcome to Dateline New Haven. I'm going to ask you to bring that uh, mic really close to you and speak into it so close that you're almost touching it. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're about five miles farther from it than you need to be. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, how's that? That's great. Well, any congratulations on this book. Just as a as a journalist, I got to tell you, it just blew me away. You interviewed five hundred people over eight years. You wrote about this case in depth. You wrote about the New Haven Police in depth, the history of New Hallville in depth, the generations of families who came from South Carolina and the way their land was appropriated by law enforcement and how they came here and what they found was different. Same. It's just it's just brilliant. And uh, I just say, Mazel Tov. Could you give people? I'm so flattered. Thank could you. you. Give people a a, a very short synopsis of the what the book is about and what the story is about. I'm happy to do it, but I'd rather you did. Um, I think if it's okay with you to explain what the story is about, I think I maybe need to tell you a little something about where it came from. And um, I was going to ask story, you about that, but okay. But the story, if that's all right with you, I mean, yeah. the story has nothing personally to do with me, which is, I think, important to say, but it comes from my own childhood in New Haven. And I would say that growing up in New Haven, you know, I lived here um, with my single mom and we lived in a rented two-family house on Willow Street. You know, we had one floor and my mom struggled a lot. Willow Street was a little different then. Yeah, it was pretty different. And my mom struggled a lot. You know, I I could hear her through my bedroom wall. You know, um, she was out on the fold out in the living room and she'd be worrying about how she was going to make the rent. And you were the um, only kid. No, I had a sister as well. She gave us the two other rooms and she slept in the living room. She's a wonderful mother um, and very generous. But, you know, we didn't have many luxuries or anything like that. But my New Haven childhood, as you know, New Haven is an incredibly diverse, small, but incredibly diverse city. It's really a very unusual American place. And if you are, you know, if you look at the work of demographers and so forth, you'll see that New Haven is really a representative city in lots of ways because it is small, but it has so many in its diversity. It reflects so many American trends and norms and things like that um, in good ways and also in ways that the country can improve. But anyway, my way of, by the way, I can't imagine living anywhere else. I came here at 18 years old, 1978. I thought it was the greatest city I could imagine living in. I used to hang out like Grinch village and stuff. And I've never wanted to live anywhere else. I didn't want to raise my kids anywhere else. I mean, of course, we got all the challenges. I'm not, you know, it's not sugarcoating, and I enjoy even wrestling. I think the way we try to tackle challenges and the way we can be ridiculous about thinking we're the model city and everybody's a 501c3 that's going to fix every problem, and we get our knees bruised. But I feel like we try and we care, and there's so much beauty 
physical beauty, human beauty, and culture, and and I don't know. That's my answer. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. <laughs> I think yeah. that I think that as children, we tend to um, most kids stay in their neighborhoods, right? And that's fine. But I was one of the ways I'm really grateful to New Haven was that I happened to be a kid who played a lot of baseball. And so I was at the leagues took you all over the city. And so I really. It's interesting how that's such a leveler. And over the years in, in Dom H or on the other leagues, they've had these interesting cultural clashes, right? I remember one story you did the advocate where the black parents were kind of rough on the ref and rough on the kids and the white liberal parents in the same league wanted to be a little touchy feely about everybody gets a prize and how that kind of clashed. You know, I love that. These, are the, things that, yeah. these are the things you would know. <laughs> I, you know, was just a kid and I was mainly, I felt everywhere I went in New Haven, I felt kind of like an outsider, not completely of wherever I was. And, um, you know, which is probably typical. For and how'd you feel about that? Well, just, I think that's fairly typical for people who come writers, but one of the, well, I have to say, that's the other thing I love about New Haven is that I feel like everyone could be an outsider here. I think that's right. When George Edwards died, everybody loved him from the doctors to the city leaders to everyone was wiretapping him. I mean, it's kind of a city where you're yourself and that you can be, and you can still be part of the community. I think, I think that, I think, that's, that's, that's well but said. But as a teenager, it's a little different because everyone feels like you're, you're the weird person. As well, I just told you a little bit about what it was like in our household, but then I, I was a full scholarship um, student in junior high school at Hopkins and I would be playing baseball. I just remember when I would go to school, you, for example, I would see that so many of my classmates had braces on their teeth. But then I go to play baseball. I remember noticing one day that there was only one kid in the whole league who had braces. These are kinds of things you notice as a, as a child. And then there was another day in another league where I was playing on Bowen Field, which is essentially a Newhallville. And I, it was one of the signal moments of my childhood because I just remember standing there at my position. It's a dusty field, you know, and I'm standing there. And, you know, as children, you don't talk about these things, but you have a sense of them, right or wrong. And it was my sense that a lot of the people I played with and against came from real struggle. Um, and, you know, that it made me feel, given my my own circumstances, I felt incredibly prosperous, like a like a little prince or something relative to what I sensed were some of the experiences of kids around me. And I remember standing out there in the infield, and then I could just see the expanse of New Haven. And right over there, because everything so close was Yale University, which every New Haven kid thinks of as in some way or another paradise for a young person. And it was the juxtaposition. It was so close and yet so far. And I, I, I just, that proximity and yet that sort of boundary nature of it, I just, as a child, I just thought, and I remember exactly how I thought about it because it was so formal in my head. I thought, how could this be? And it just seemed, I understood, I grew up, I moved away, you know, I did my work, I traveled around the country and I saw that this was a very common American phenomenon, that there were these that throughout the country in cities, there is there are these really abrupt juxtapositions. But as we are saying about New Haven, I saw right then, I think, or felt um, just within myself what I came to regard later in life as a, an American somewhat, um, somewhat, um, if not typical, common American phenomenon. And to me, that was the physical representation of inequality and you know, I just, it just didn't sit well with me. And as I, you know, would come back to see my mom over the years, 
I would see that in certain ways, I mean, you'd always read, you know, for example, in New York Times, there were invariably, you saw them every two or three years, there'd be another article on the two Connecticut's, right? And I'd come back to visit my mom. And again, it was my anecdotal sense that things were just getting better at, you know, in the surroundings of the great university, which, you know, really is a great university. And it was flourishing. And I could see that in communities where there had once been industrial work, those communities didn't seem to me to be doing much better. So we're going to fast forward. Nick David has a new book, The Other Side of Prospect, about a, a young man from New Hallville who was uh, intimidated into falsely confessing to a murder he didn't commit. And it's a story about what that says about how New Hallville got to be uh, in the trouble it's in, how so many people like this. And, you know, you're talking about New Haven, how a tip of, it was a common story about the divide and the inequality, yet it's also a specific story. That also is compelling about Yale, New Haven, its history. That's also the story you decide to tell in this book about right. a story that's very specific, so compelling. I couldn't put it down for hundreds of pages at a time to find out what happens to this no. guy, Bobby, and his family. You cared so much about his victim, about him, about – and then, you know, rooting for him. And, and what got you to this story? So you came back in 2012. Did you move to New York to establish yourself as a writer? Yes. And, and where did um, you go to school, college? I went to Harvard. And then New York City. Then New York City. And you became a big-time journalist. You have, like, a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> novel, I mean, a book, and, you know, Pulitzer Prize finalist and all that kind of stuff. You're a New Yorker staff writer. And no, not staff writer. Oh, you're not staff writer. But is, it true that the, but is it true that the editor told you, go live in New Haven and find out? Like, did they pay you for that? No. Um, I, I, through much of my life, this was something that I just kept thinking about. And I, I guess I felt that for some for something that involved, I mean, I think you gave a small sense of the many different threads that I think I felt it would require understanding to be able to tell a story like this. I felt as though I wasn't experienced enough. And I, I kept waiting until I felt that I was, I don't know how to say it, experienced enough to, to, do, to do what I wanted to do well. And at a certain point, I just decided. And so I told editors that this is what I wanted to do. And they encouraged me and said, you know, go back and be in touch. And so in your 40s, in 2012, you had kids, you and your family come back to right. New Haven. And, and were you going to be able to afford to spend eight years writing a book about how New Haven got to be this unequal place? Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, How'd I had to pay for it. <laughs> well, I mean, my, 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 I had, you know, if you grow up with a mother who's a great saver, I, one of the ways I'd been preparing to do this was saving money. So you lived on savings for eight years to do this book? Well, I mean, eventually at a certain, well, there were, there were a few ways um, that I did. One is savings. Another is I on the side, I would sometimes do other things to make money. And then eventually when I was ready, I got a book contract. But sure, this, I mean, you don't go into writing things like this um, thinking it's going to be a, a huge amount of money. I was just doing it. Um, this was something. You, you still know, have kids to feed. Yeah. And they're fed. I mean, <laughs> I, but, so it's 15 minutes in the day. We still haven't told people what the story is. So you, right, yeah, so yeah. you decided you're going to find out. Right. So you come back and you have, the, you have a concept, right? But you cannot tell a story. Uh, you, a concept is not a book. A book is a narrative, especially, I mean, it's called narrative nonfiction, right? And so I was just looking around and talking to people and so forth and trying to get a sense of how to do this. And I got a phone call from a New Haven lawyer who called me up and he said, Ken, I Rosenthal. Hear, Ken Rosenthal and Ken said, a great pursuer of seemingly lost causes. <laughs> and I didn't know him. And he called me and he said, I've heard about you and what you're trying to do. I have a client who I think would be um, someone you should meet. And um, I went to see Ken Rosenthal. He was at that point, his office was in 
the third floor of a law firm and it was a, in an old converted house and he was up there under the eaves and it was just full <laughs> of boxes. I think he was in sweatpants. I mean, it was really, you know, and he just said, I want you to look in those boxes and then we'll talk about it. And it was a case um, that involved someone who'd been sent to prison when he was 16 years old for confessing to a murder that Ken said he actually hadn't committed, that the, the confession had been coerced. And look, look at the documents, see for yourself. And so I looked through and I'm no jury. I'm just a, another person. And while plenty of things there look pretty persuasive to me, I didn't know. But the way Ken talked about this young man, whose name was Bobby, um, and the and his feeling for what the case might suggest about some of the broader things I was thinking about was really compelling. And so I subsequently met Bobby in prison at Cheshire, and we began talking over the course of a year. Um, that wouldn't be typical, but the commissioner of corrections at that time was a guy named Scott Semple, and he was interested in what I was doing. And so he arranged for me to be able to have many conversations with Bobby, which then I did. And Bobby, in turn, you know, helped me to sort of, in effect, meet his, his community. Um, and so I just began talking to many, many people. And just as I said earlier, that I think New Haven is a representative city for many American issues, whether problematic or, you know, positive, I would say that um, Bobby's case became a representative, I, I don't know, portal point of entry into the things that I wanted to Like how to in the world about. does someone commit to a murder they didn't do? How does how to police overlook such obvious evidence? When what it means, somebody else? it basically boils down to what are the consequences of where you're growing up and how much place matters and how places become what they are. And then the effect of one place juxtaposed with another place might have on people. And murder is a very extreme thing, obviously. It's the most extreme. But I do think it's often the expression, extreme expression of different kinds of frustration or pain or hopelessness. This isn't in any way to forgive. By the way, I don't see it as a hopeless book. Oh, I don't. I think there's a lot of hope throughout the book. Oh, thanks. I think Bobby I is this inspiring guy. It's, it's, it's clear-eyed hope. Like, of course it's terrible this happens. And of course, when Bobby tries to get his mind around how to be in prison, the way he uses the time productively, but not in a storybook way. It's hard, but he comes out with some tools he didn't have. And then, you know, Stefan Moran and, and, and um, Scott Lewis and other people have gotten out to help him when he's trying to read just the real life outside prison. And, and how he's like, we don't know what's going to happen with Bobby in the book, but we're rooting for him and we have some hope he's going to be okay. And the system, which is so unjust to him and it can never make up for what it did, there were individuals who were starting to come around to make decisions where the settlement they gave him doesn't undo it. Or the police officers, you highlight one who's now the chief who gets to know the community and try to do better. doesn't mean the problems are going away, the underlying roots of the problems, but it's not always that the wrong thing happens. Right. I would, say that, that, life is I would say that one thing that kept drumming through my head as I wrote was that everything's complicated. And I think as a writer, when you're writing about people, one of the reasons you should take exceptional care is because everybody deserves to be known as well as a writer can possibly know them because in the end, what you're going to tell of them is going to be slender, but it's going, it needs to be fair. Well, it wasn't and slender. You interviewed 500 people's book and you list them all at the back in little type. And it's fun to look through if you're from New Haven, because you know, everybody, if you read the independent, they're all quoting the independent. And I could tell you someone who's known some of these people for as long as 35, 40 years and talk to them a lot. I learned something new about every one of them. And I learned, 
stuff about New Hallville and the history of New Haven that I never knew. And it's exciting to learn about your own city that you're in every day and engaging with every day from the perspective of someone who's had the time and the intelligence and the talent to look at it deep and broad and step back. And it can help us do something about it, I'm hoping. That's what we're talking about today in WNHH's Dateline New Haven. Nicholas Davidoff, author of The Other Side of Prospect, the story of violence and justice in the American city, which is our city. Although my quibble is you talk about having these demographics that show America with the diversity. And that's all based, I believe, on a metropolitan um, area demographic that includes Milford and Cheshire and Waterbury, which I would argue it's apples and oranges when you compare that to America, because like in the Southwest, they have different kind of laws when you can incorporate your towns and things like that. And I don't know that New Haven is typical of America that way. I think, um, you know, here we it's need, a quibble. It's not a here, here we need to to bring in both demographers and etymologists to understand the difference between representative and typical yeah. and also to I think we can leave it, though, is that for such a small place, New Haven is an unusually diverse and yeah. interesting place. And I think that one of the virtues of New Haven for people who are trying to understand cities has always been that although it is a small place in its complication, it's very revealing of much larger places that are more difficult to scrutinize. So I feel as though that's a reason why there are so many good books written about New Haven. And that's the reason so you many people like it. me settle here. You feel like you get your arms around it. It's interesting. It's challenging. It's also the beauty of the bigger places. But you kind of right away get in the middle of it. You can feel like you have an impact. Nicholas David. Yeah, I, I mean, I felt as really lucky to grow up here it, for exactly those reasons. And Nicholas David, you, you, uh, you've made some tough choices around this book. You're a white guy plunging into a black world. You didn't want to make things worse. You had a Hippocratic oath that said you didn't want to do more harm by writing about this, but you saw the good and trying to tell two story. And is that possible? So I'd like you to read you and hear the listeners hear the famous Janet Malcolm quote about what it's like when a reporter deals with, a, interviews somebody, right? She had the essay, The Journalist and the Murderer, and you were a journalist and you were talking to an alleged murderer. Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows what he does is morally indefensible. He's kind of a confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. Like the credulous widow who wakes up one day to find the charming young man and all her savings gone, so the consenting subject of a piece of nonfiction learns when the article or book appears his hard lesson. Journalists justify their treachery in various ways according to the temperaments. The more pompous talk about freedom of speech and the public's right to know, the least talented talk about art, the seemliest murmur about earning a living. So when I read this book, Nicholas, or I guess you go by Nikki. I thought of Janet Malcolm the whole time and thought about it. Here's someone who was trying his damnedest to prove Janet Malcolm wrong. You write your notes about how you wouldn't use the N-word. You're not using Bobby's last name. There's all sorts of names you protect. That's his choice. Uh, but they're all this kind of people who you left information out while including a lot of important information. You had this incredible scene where the violence interrupters, um, Kermit Carolina and uh, William Jumboy Outlaw, prevent two teens from getting in what could be a deadly shooting in a dispute over a bike. And you call them, you have some great names in them, sleeveless and swagger. You don't put the real names because otherwise that could have led to another fight. And you clearly, when Bobby wins a big settlement, you don't say how many dollars it is. You don't talk about what town he moves to, which I thought were good choices, but they're not the Janet Malcolm way. You did not write a book. When you read this book, it was clear that you cared about your sources and that nothing bad happened to them because of what you write. And that well, does fly in the face of the Malcolm approach. Her argument, I believe, is that to tell a true story, you have to be a shithead. You have to, like, 
Get people's trust to fool them and then write what they don't want you to write. You didn't write what anybody didn't want them to write. Even Clarence Willoughby, the villain of the book, we hear from his side how he felt the whole thing. I don't think there'd be a fact he would change. Is Malcolm wrong? Is it possible to write to serve the reader and serve the truth and tell a tough, difficult story without burning the people whose trust you gave? I, I hope so. I mean, I, I, Janet Malcolm obviously could only speak for Janet Malcolm, but I feel as though when I set out to do this, I decided that I should keep, I mean, it's been for quite a while, it's just been my personal policy when talking to people to explain before I ask them any questions, exactly what I'm hoping to do and who I am and how I came to do what I'm doing. And then at the end of That's the con- practically smart to be honest, because then they can trust you. Well, right. I mean, you can't actually know people if you don't have some level of rapport. But then at the end of the conversation, which is inevitably a conversation, you're not I'm not just asking questions, but I'm being responsive to what they're saying and so forth. I always, always say, how, how did you feel about my part of this discussion? Did you feel that in any way I was getting anything wrong? That even in terms of tone or anything else, that I might be misguided because you don't get as a writer many opportunities. I mean, this took eight years, right? And it's about a subject. I, re, I mean, really, what's one of the subjects here? It's, it's, it's about something that's been going on for a real long time that is a persistent problem that hasn't received a lot of attention or certainly sufficient attention, right? And if you want people to pay attention to something, it seems to me you have to be you have to be caring about how you go about things, but you also have to really understand it. You don't get many chances. So I didn't want to make any mistakes, as I always don't want to make any mistakes. But part of not making mistakes is asking people how you might possibly make mistakes. And so to me, that was just a natural way to go about things. I want to but say, though, I want to say, like... I mean, I didn't change any facts and I didn't, as far as I know, really hide anything. Of course I not. just but you, changed but you some names. Name. But yeah, and that's okay. Everyone does. It. I'm just saying, how did you decide that? Like, in other words, oh, how did I decide like which names teens, to change? Like Swagger and um, Sleeveless. They were in an argument over bike. They could have. I guess there are a few reasons to when, when I changed you named names. William Juneboy Outlaw and, and Kermit and Carolina most who people, was settling this. Right. Most people I would name. The people who I didn't name are, are there, are, I guess, a few reasons. One reason is, is that gun violence is a very serious thing. And often the way that gun violence occurs is via social media, via social media where people put up intemperate things on social media, other people respond and it escalates and it becomes what's called a disrespect. And then people get increasingly angry about things that never actually happened. And I just felt that by the murder and poverty and many of the subjects that I was thinking about are really sensitive things. And the last thing I wanted to do was to be A, insensitive myself, or B, instead of doing my own very small part to try to make things better to in fact make things worse or do some harm. And we all wrestle so, with that every day with us. Journalism sure. starts work in a city. And often when we try not to make things worse, we do make them worse because we're bending over backwards. You didn't in this book. The book's terrific. I'm saying that. How does one think about this? In I guess mind? for me, the way I did is what I did throughout the book, which I talked to as many people as I could about this issue. So anything that I did in that respect is because there was a, considerable amount of advice that said this would be a more prudent and way to And you're trying to tamp down the unintended consequences. So by right. not naming the kids in dispute, 
you're helping prevent a, an online spat over true or not true statements based on what you wrote about them. Right. I also would say that in that respect, you're only meeting those people for a moment. And the part of them that you're meeting is in one very stressful, very fleeting amount of time. And I feel as though if there's no other way to access who they really are as people, then that too is a consideration because there's no opportunity to control unintended consequences by telling the true story. You can just do your best. I mean, I hate to say this, but somebody's going to be upset about something in your book and something you would never in a million years have thought. This happens all the time with articles, the little thing you didn't think of because you're not from the culture or you just don't know the people that end up making a fight. It seems to me like you're working very hard, and I salute this, to make sure your book only does good by having us think about these big issues and care about them as a community and not have it lead to any further violence. Is it possible? And can you, Janet Malcolm, I think would argue that the journalist's only obligation is the truth. And I don't agree with her, by the way, but I think she would argue that, you know, T.S. Eliot was Nazi sympathizer, but he did great art and told her, you know, true that way that we, we don't pick our artists who do produce the great art and tell the truth the best way because they aren't cynical bastards, but the people who go for the right causes and send money to the LCL back when they were the Civil Liberties, rather than anti-Civil Liberties Union. Did you at any point sacrifice telling a true story, which I've done a million times in my life, telling the whole story because I didn't want to hurt the person I was dealing with? I felt, honestly, I think it's possible to be skeptical and compassionate and comprehensive in what you're doing. And I feel as though I did the best I could. Like I once didn't want someone to find out who his real father was because I knew it would hurt him. And I felt like the story did not have to have that part. Oh, Even well, though it in depth was about them, I left out the part about who his father was. And I could have been accused of covering up something. We get that all the time in the independent. Why don't you name the people who are arrested for these crimes? We said enough people falsely, uh, falsely get accused that the article that shows up the most on Google online is when they're accused, not what actually happens. So we don't name them, but they say, you're trying to protect us from the truth and telling the whole story by not doing the name. I see their argument. I don't know that we're right, but I think we kind of err on the side you did is that it's hard to live with yourself. And I, I, I've never forgiven myself for the mistakes I made with somebody else's harm for something I wrote. And I guess the question I have is, can you still produce a book as good as this <laughs> by following the do no harm Hippocratic oath rather than be a smart I, I asked several people who I really trusted who are different kinds of people to read the manuscript before it was done. I listened very carefully to their responses. Um, and so, and there's a great thing about it. We don't have to go into here why you didn't use the N word and all the different responses. Winford Rember talked about how important it was to capture it, but Winford Rember was black who was almost lynched and his experience is different from the white person who hears it differently. That, that, that was really interesting. But, uh, but you did leave out, for instance, not just Bob, why'd you leave out Bobby's last name? That could be, I mean, he tells cops to Google him so that when they stop him just for driving while black. That was his choice. And I just, I felt as though when you're talking with someone, it, it's it. I this is what he chose, and you know, and it wasn't for Did he me. Give the reason? No, I mean he thought he thought a lot about it, and he went different ways, and this is what he finally said. But he's aware up. that people can find his name in twenty seconds. I guess so, or maybe not. I don't know how big a presence he is in doing. But you also didn't mention the amount. I don't think you needed. To. You didn't mention the amount of dollars he got in a settlement that kind of changed his life. So we don't know if it's 1 million, 15 million. Right. Why did you make that decision? Well, I think I characterized that it was a sufficient amount of yeah. money so that he would. No, be... you didn't make the wrong choice. I'm just wondering why you made that choice. Um, I thought 
for the most part, there are only a few details like that where I soften them slightly. And the reason you I didn't did soften them, you just didn't tell us the number. No, I characterized the number though. Yeah. And I think that the reason I did that is because I think it goes back to my experiences once I spent on a different project, I spent, I was curious about why professional football is the most popular televised thing there is in this country. It's pretty sick. And yet it's real, <laughs> it's almost entirely secret. In other words, it's all based on game plans. It's based that no one ever sees. It's play calls that people don't see. You only have the aperture of the television screen. You don't actually know what everybody's doing, whether they did what they were supposed to do, what it all means. And I, want, I was really curious about I wasn't a big football fan. I was just curious about what it all meant. So I spent a year and a half with a professional with football the team, the Jets, trying to understand this, how this, in fact, worked. And one of the things that this was before this project, and one of the things that a lot of players impressed upon me as we would talk about that I thought I would like to do this project next, they would say, you really should do this. This is, we are, you know, we are quasars. We are people who are from communities a lot like the one you're describing. This is many, many players would say this, but we, we are exceptions. We are the incredibly lucky ones. And then I learned a lot from them and also from the organization about how, what it means to be someone who suddenly comes into a lot of money, as will happen with a professional athlete, and what that does to your existence. Or is that one of the people falsely accused is shot dead after getting $4 million? And, yeah. So this is a point of just, this is just, you know, it's to some degree as a writer, you want to make the great, the best choices in terms of point of emphasis. If you do that, then you're emphasizing, if every detail, then can be the more charged a certain detail is, then it affects everything else you're telling. So when you ask me, what did I leave out? I left out millions of things because I talked to most people I talked to, I talked for hours and hours and hours. And, and that produces a very, well, very that's a different compressed question. amount. The best work has most of the good stuff left out, whether it's a movie, an article, or right. book, because you choose so, the best. But that's different again, from deciding feel, something you otherwise would though, include because you don't want to do harm. Right. So I feel as though as a writer, I'm in service of the reader, them understanding and having a feeling for the essence of what I'm trying to do, that I'm trying to tell the truest possible story. And that means it's inherently that means that I have to make lots and lots of choices every day about the details. That I right. Use. And again, again, so, I'm not even disagreeing with you at all. So right. It doesn't mean to be grilling you because I think I would make the same choice, but I wrestle with these every day. Like the guy who was killed was the second kid to be killed in one family in a year. And I felt so bad for the mom. It turned out he was wanting another murder. At the time it wasn't known, but also he was on probation. It was a pretty bad charge. So we decided not to run it that day. Just saying not to add to the pain, but we did deprive our, sometimes you do deprive the reader of every fact and maybe that's okay. The information can come out at another time. I just think that part of what it is to be someone who works at a publication or someone who is a writer that is a virtually unknown, but such a significant part of what you're doing is how many decisions and choices, so here's if the you're case. doing it well. So I think but I just, I guess I want to say that there is one more element that, um, Yes, you are making rigorous choices and you are trying to do the best you can for the reader and, the, and you have not many opportunities to tell something which you feel is a very underserved um, source of public information. And you, and, and you want to, in, in certain ways, you're not writing this unless you want to make things better. 
But where does it come? Where, where really does it come from? And what's your relationship to the people but you you're writing about? And having... I guess I just want to say that there's a whole other element to it. And I, I, I think of something Frederick Wiseman, the great documentary filmmaker, once said, where he said that in ultimately his relationships to people as he's thinking about them as an artist become a relationship of love. And that sounds like a very yeah. treacly thing to no, say, I'm with it. You love the, but you I love feel as though human. your heart has to be capable of feeling real affection and care for people in their full complexity as possible. Otherwise, I just, I, 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 otherwise no it diminishes. And, you know, Janet Malcolm was a great writer. There's just no question about that. And she did so much important work. She didn't but love her that's one thing that she said that feels to me particularly unloving. And, you and know, you can't, it's just tough love. Like one person I have so much admiration and like so deeply is someone I wrote something like 20 stories about being corrupt and he lost his job. I thought he was a really good person. So I agree with you. You have to see everyone as human in their complexity. I think you were ducking a little bit the question about showing, not telling. One of the cardinal rules of how you, so if you're going to make things better, you're not going to write all the prescriptions for what the policies are that you think will get rid of poverty and gun violence. It's good to deal with them. You do at the end of the book, but that's not the power of the book. It's the detail it's about being in the interrogation room, what it felt like in jail and what it smelled like and what it was like when he, Bobby's getting his mind around as he goes by the convenience store. He used to hang out and figure out, was it my fault that I got framed for something at 16, even though everybody else was evil? Well, maybe I made a bad choice in hanging out there. And it's the complexities. And often that's in the telling the detail rather than Showing it with the detail rather than just telling it. So when you're saying a significant amount of money in a settlement, again, I agree with your decision. I'm not giving you a hard time, I promise. I'm talking about how do we make these decisions. Right. So when you sure. say he got a significant amount of money, that's a lot different from saying $2 million or $15 million. People see it and they understand a certain way. When you're saying he moved to a community to try to rebuild his life, rather than saying, and I'm not asking you to, I promise, you know, whether it was Essex or Guilford or New Canaan, those are much different places. Or Vermont. Right. So you did sacrifice, and I think it was the right thing to do. Janet Malcolm wouldn't have done it in a million years. But did you sacrifice serving the reader? Do you sometimes have to sacrifice serving the reader by telling the full story with all the details? And again, you leave details out because they're not germane to a story, or you leave scenes out that are compelling because they're not more compelling, gets in the way of telling the story. But when you decide not to name the town, when you decide not to name the amount he got, which again, I'm not criticizing you for, you're not making that decision because you're, you think it's not germane to the story. You're doing that to protect him so, so that nobody comes after him for more of that money or nobody comes to the town where he is. Am I wrong? Yeah, exactly. And it's also, let's be clear, this is the aftermath. When I, when, when I tell that, it is after the story has, that I'm telling is essentially ended. So it's in a kind of epilogue. And so there I feel as though the story that I'm intending to tell, I'm not ducking anything. And there, it just felt like a matter of human decency, um, the two details you mentioned. But I didn't feel in doing that that I was, I mean, you say ducking. I didn't feel that way. I felt as though. But you made a choice not based on how you cut out good stuff because there's more good stuff in the guess the way of the story. You weren't right. making a narrative I mean, choice. Let's you were just making face it. We, no live in, we live in a time which is quite different from the time when I started writing where the access to information and the appetite for it that ensues is 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 unending and it's not and, true that everybody should have all the facts all the time we do well, make i also choices just think that as a nonfiction writer part of what makes something you're writing as good and even one hopes beautiful as it can be is if you make good choices about what you leave out i think the hardest thing as a writer is to write short 
And and I when I say right short, my reporters, by the way, (laughs) yeah, I think we've lost that fight with the youngest generation. They all think that forty paragraphs is better than twenty. We were taught the exact opposite, right? But also, it's what you leave out. And I think if you know, when I think back on so many writers who I revere, this is invariably what their advice is to younger writers. Anybody can go on and on. It's how but that's you t- still different from the question of the settlement in the town. That's a totally different question. I, I don't know. I think we're belaboring something where we both know. Well, we- even though you and I are on the same side of that question, that's not the conventional answer. I just think I just don't think it's the conventional sub- subject of a of big discussion. Writers make choices constantly all the time about what they say and what they okay. won't. I mean, you were talking earlier about Bill Finnegan's pieces in the New Yorker. There's plenty that he left out, and you know, names he changed and. All right. sorts of things there. All the time. And for a generation of writers, those pieces were transformative because it gave writers who read them the feeling that there was so much more that they could do than maybe they hadn't considered before. Um, but, because that was not just in magazines like The New Yorker at the time. That was not what we would call, you know, typical table of contents fair. So, I mean, this is, I mean, I feel like we're descending a little into journalism class, which is to me, and I'm, I hope you, really, really interesting. But I feel as though, like every other writer, I made lots of choices. I, in my heart, I tried very hard to tell a story that was true and accurate and would deepen people's understanding of the things that I was interested in and really cared about, things that I thought were important and perhaps under-described and under-considered. But I wanted to do so in a beautiful story. And I've been very aware that what makes a real nonfiction story beautiful is choices and vividness of detail. And that's part of why it took so long, not only why it takes so long, because those are things that just, you know, I mean, you just, it's like memory, right? If you're writing a memoir, you don't sit down and just remember it all. It's real work over time to excavate the details right. and the connections between details that and are really talk- meaningful for people. And so- you succeeded in that. You wrote a beautiful, vivid book that is true. The other side of prospect about it, a falsely accused teenager of a murder in New Haven and how that happened and what it means out from Norton. We're talking about that on WNHHFM Dateline New Haven, vivid detail. That was one of my favorite part about the books. I felt I was there in the interrogation room. I felt I was there in the, in South Carolina when the policeman took Mr. Fields's property away with the deed and he had to make that decision i'd like you to read an expert just if you don't mind to help our readers see just what a gift you have for detail and why when you read this book you feel like you're present and this is a scene um i asked you to open up to the page if you don't mind um where he's in prison you're describing prison you visited bobby there a lot you had him talk about it and um you know you do quote people in the book but often you're just describing as though you're there so you want me to read these, these, a couple of paragraphs from the... About what it was like in prison. Okay. Outside, this is in, in, in the Cheshire uh, Correctional Facility, which is a, um, a high-security prison in Connecticut. Um, outside their cells, everywhere men went, everything they did was recorded on camera, except for in the cut, out-of-view locations like the supply closets. Without open windows, the Cheshire smell was inescapable a rancid blend of laundry detergent with such a distinctive scent that a prison official noted it helped dogs track escapees, and the cortisol odor of stress and depression, the sour heaviness of not wanting to be there. 
Jail doesn't give you soap, Bobby said. So if you don't have family to put money in your commissary account, you don't have soap. Like everything else, Cheshire's horrible stink, Bobby said, eventually became natural. The prison laundry was such an erratic operation that white t-shirts continually came back brownish, and Bobby took to washing clothes in his cell sink, as he sometimes also washed himself, the practice known as bird bathing. You weren't allowed to hang your clothes up to dry from a line because this might impede a correctional officer's uh, a, a CO's view of the room through the Ju Judas window from outside the door, but you could drape them from your desk or your towel hook. The funky dampness of drying cloth added to the claustrophobia. Other smells seeped into the day. Men MacGyvered cooking devices, generically known as stingers, by attaching stripped extension cord wires to batteries that were kept separate by a wedge of toothbrush handle or cutlery, bound together and then submerged in a plastic container filled with salted water. A plastic bag holding cookstuffs was placed in the container. When the extension cord was plugged into a wall socket, the water heated up in the plastic container, and soon the hallways might smell briefly of recipes. Sometimes there were power outages, and Bobby thought they happened because so many people had stingers running. The lights would go out, and it was literal darkness in there for 13 hours until the daylight seeped in through the window crevices. That's beautiful. Nicholas David right in front. Of, and that, that's what the book is like. That's why you feel like you're transported to in prison cells. You have some, So in that case, is it fair to say? That some of that you saw yourself visit to Cheshire, some of which you interviewed Bobby and others, what's like to be in Cheshire. And that's why you're a master at this craft. So when Bill Finnegan wrote about these kind of scenes, he was good at that too. And he always kind of told you I was there. Like you clearly had to be at some of these places. When he went to a job interview, when he got out of prison to Home Depot, I take it you were in the car when you described him being in the car and you were in the room when he's at the computer, you're watching him, right? Yes. But I mean, I felt very strongly that this wasn't my story. I feel that as that that it shouldn't be about me and that whatever presence I was should be as deferential as possible. Because and I actually I actually love that about the book. And what's interesting about I don't know that Finnegan was wrong either. You know, there was the whole new journalism movement, Tom Wolf, where you say, don't pretend you're not part of the story, but then they made themselves too much of stories made about them. I think Finnegan did talk about his relationship to his subject and what happened with his role in the scene. I think he partly was arguing that the reader deserved to know that because he affected events. And you write in the afternoon how you didn't want to affect events, even when you had to hold back from you could have interceded to help somebody. I'm obviously on your side. I very much believe that the writer should leave himself out, except when you have to, and we're stupid not doing it. It's awkward. But did you have to give up anything in the process? Do you think you succeeded totally? Did you ever say, hey, you're about to fall into that ditch, don't walk there? You know, like, did you resist telling him how to answer a question in the Home Depot? Did you give him five bucks for the Uber? I mean, no, I, 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 I once asked, he was once really cold. And so I gave him my sweatshirt. I mean, on, <laughs> I mean, but Matt, you, write and, about and this, I, Nicholas, you did and, write and a I, book about this, how you had to resist affecting events. Right. Oh, sure. I mean, I think that anybody who writes about poverty, this is just anybody I've ever met who does. It's your impulse to, in whatever way you're capable, be more helpful is strong and it's really complicated and some people i mean these are things that all kinds of people write about from adrian leblanc to matthew desmond to every writer i know who writes about poverty thinks about this i would just say i mean you asked a strand of things and i would and one of the things that i think i thought i i think about is yes one of the um in 
in Bill Finnegan's work in that in, in those New Yorker pieces that then became a part of his really significant book, Cold New World, I think that one of the things that happens is that the relationship between Finnegan and his subject becomes really, really interesting. It becomes so interesting that if I think back right now, as when you were talking, I was thinking back, what I first remember are some of the things he said about his relationship with the subject. Right, his and parents are saying, there's the guy who's going to help. You know what who's it was like going to help save Terry. Right, and it's what it's like when Terry comes and stays in his apartment, all sorts of And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's just, just his style. choice. It's yeah. just a different choice. It and different I choice. really felt, I mean, I am telling you, this came from when, what I said at the beginning. When I was a kid, I saw this, and this has been, I, for me, this has been something that I've found troubling all my life. And that was what I was doing my best to sort of think through. And I want to get and to that. I just didn't mo- think that I, I, I just didn't think it was my story. I, I, I didn't yeah. think people should care about me. I thought that what I brought to it was a certain kind of over, over decades concern about this and a curiosity and a desire to put in whatever time I had and do the best I could to tell a story that I feel like many people can and should. And tell. I want to follow with that one last question. Mark Abraham's listening said the new book is great. I got an advanced copy too. I also like the section on historical context and specific details by the author about each place building and family. So true. And I just can't not mention your observation about the Winchester Herald, you know, the, the Winchester rifle plant, which used to have over 15,000 employees and gave people jobs and New Hallville blacks from the South came up to work there. And then all the jobs left and the poverty remained. And people talk about why is this gun culture in New Hallville? And you showed that when the rifle plant was in its heyday, the Winchester Herald, their marketing partner, reported that they're trying to get 12-year-olds. That you have to reach them in the 12, sort of like tobacco companies with teens. you got to get them started thinking that it's cool to have a rifle. And they, they didn't want black as their rifle. They just wanted white American kids to want these rifles. And how that promoted a gun culture out of that neighborhood in our society. And we never, society, looked down on 12-year-old boys if they were white in America wanting to have a good old American rifle. But now that gun culture remains, the teens have it, it's dangerous, and we have a double standard. I just thought that was a brilliant example of what Mark's talking about. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a really sort of complicating thing to think through, the desire of a major employer in a city whose business is to um, to encourage demand for um a, a dangerous weapon in really, really young people. That was just, was and then a, that creed owner society then left was left behind in that neighborhood. The deadly purposes after the company left. Right. I mean, one one quick thing that I would just point out, just from both of our lifetimes, we know, is that if you go across this country, there are post-industrial neighborhoods everywhere as the sources of employment industry left, and they left then neighborhoods where people who had come there to work no longer had work. And in those communities, when there was no longer work, there was no post-industrial solution. So you just created this problem that repeats and repeats and repeats. And because we know from all the research that one, that poverty can be generational, especially if there isn't a source of uplift, which is for every immigrant generation in, that came through the Eastern Seaboard, New Hallville is an iconic neighborhood because every generation went there beginning with Newhall's carriage factory, and it was a source of upward mobility, right? And that only stops when there's no longer work and no longer work for people who are just, in effect, starting out in life who may not be extremely well-educated, but 
who want to work hard and want better for their families. Did you and, find what you were looking for? We only got one minute left. You, did you find, you came here eight years ago, you wanted to find out the answer about this hometown. Did you find it? I, I, I hope so. I mean, I feel as though a reader should more be the judge. I hope you found it because certainly I, 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 I did my best. I, I couldn't, I couldn't do any better. I, I never tried harder on things, but you know, uh, and like Mark Abraham, I think you did succeed wildly. I think everyone should immediately order the other side of prospect, get it on Amazon. We're going to learn new things about our city and we're going to take up Nick Davidoff's challenge at two upcoming events to talk about it on Thursday, excuse me, on Wednesday, um, December 26th, he's going to be at Stetson Library with Michael Jefferson, Diane Brown, starting at 6. It's going to be at the Public Library on, May, on Elm Street on uh, November on October 19th with Dwayne Betts. And it'll be with Babs Rawls-Ivy on this station next Thursday. Thanks for joining us, Nick David. It was a pleasure to meet you, and job well done. Oh, thank you. You're Thanks so to Harry Dross, the best producer in the business, even if he does put Fox News on the inside studio. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day, all night, and all weekend long on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Mm-hmm.